It's interesting that there's still a strain of science denial, even from the bench of the Supreme Court, that fetal pain does not exist. Science has made huge strides over just the last decade or two, showing that even early in the womb, this little baby can experience pain. Just objectively, if you look at the scientific data, maybe as early as 12 weeks, but certainly by 15 weeks gestation, you can experience pain in the womb. Science is not standing still. It didn't stand still since the time of Roe. And it continues to move ahead so that we're looking at more and more evidence about fetal pain, conscious behavior inside the womb. It tells us more and more about how these little ones develop and how we might be able to assist their development. I'm Dr. Christina Francis, and this is the Post Row Review, a limited series podcast from the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, also known as APLOG. In this second episode of our series, we are exploring the scientific research and medical advances connected to abortion and pregnancy, the explosion of knowledge in the science of fetal development, the use of stem cells in medical research, and the latest research about chemical abortion, to name a few. You've just been listening to Dr. David Prentice, Vice President and Research Director for the Charlotte Lozier Institute. The Lozier Institute brings together physicians, sociologists, statisticians, and policy researchers to do both original and interpretive research on a wide range of life issues, and they are a valuable partner to APLOG. Fetal surgery itself has opened a lot of people's eyes. The fact that you can go in as early as 15 weeks gestational age and start repairing and healing in the womb, whether that's through surgery or even some adult stem cell treatments to correct problems, but long before they're born. And it's now become a standard protocol that you give not just mom the anesthetic, but you give the little baby in the womb anesthetic and pain medication directly. And I think one of the most revealing aspects of, yes, fetal pain does exist early in the womb, comes from Dr. Stuart Derbyshire, who in the past was adamantly opposed to the idea that fetal pain existed. He actually helped write some of the review papers that the Royal College of Obstetricians in the UK did. And he was one of the most radical, if you will, saying there's really no evidence at all for fetal pain until very, very late in gestation. But he actually did an objective review, went back and looked at the science. And just a couple of years ago, published a review paper and just flat out said, yes, as early as 12 weeks gestation. So the science is going to keep advancing and we want to be ready no matter what a Supreme Court decision might be. So let's address one of the most common misconceptions about abortion, that it is needed to save the life of the mother. But is that medically accurate? Actually, no. If it were, every OBGYN would be doing abortions, and studies tell us that between 76 and 93% of OBs do not do abortions. 
Dr. Byron Calhoun is a professor and vice chair of the obstetrics department at West Virginia University. He has been practicing maternal fetal medicine for more than 30 years, and he has never needed to perform an abortion to prevent the death of the mother, because the only intent of that procedure is to end the life of a preborn child. There's no reason to do an abortion to save the life of the mother. You may have to do an early delivery and the baby may die as a result of the delivery, but you don't have to uh, do a direct killing of the baby to save the life of the mother. I can think of probably about four or five instances in my career where I've really had to deliver somebody below, uh, say, 23, 24 weeks because of their sickness or illness. And then in that case, the babies didn't survive. But my intention was not to take the life of the baby prior to the delivery, but rather to save the life of the mother and the baby dies from prematurity. I think people get very confused sometimes about trying to separate these things out and try to use abortion as a means to convince people that you have to do abortions to save the lives of the mother. And that's just not true. You don't have to do an intentional killing to save the life of the mother. From the moment of fertilization, a new, distinct, and living human being has come into existence. And yet the premise of the Roe v. Wade decision is built upon the concept of viability, the time when a baby can live on its own outside of the womb. But with advances in medical science, that ever-changing line of viability keeps moving back. This is what Dr. Calhoun has witnessed during his career. When I started doing this and I was a resident, we weren't resuscitating 28-week babies, if you can believe that. Now 28-week babies have a 93 to 95% or more survival and intact survival. We just couldn't resuscitate. We didn't have the uh, ventilators. Since that time, we've seen a huge advance in the neonatal medicine and resuscitation and ventilators. And now the latest is going down to 22 weeks now before resuscitation of neonates, which is incredible. Even in the last few years, we've gone from 24 weeks to 23 weeks. Now it's been three or four years. Now we're down to 22 weeks. We've also seen an explosion since the late 80s, early 90s in perinatal medicine and in utero surgeries, looking at in utero therapies, looking at the formation now of fetal care centers and fetal therapy centers. We're doing things with laparoscopes and with catheters and all sorts of very small instruments now that because we have the technology, we can push that frontier to repair hearts in utero. And we're looking at repairing the lungs, the spine, the bladders, and, and things that we never would have thought of before being able to do. So there's been an explosion of that in the last 20 years. The advances in science over the last few decades also challenge the use of fetal stem cells in medical research and treatment. As Dr. Prentice says, research using fetal tissue should be a thing of the past. You know, it turns out adult stem cells are the real gold standard, especially when it comes to patients. So this antiquated science of using fetal tissue or even fetal cells that has been held up to us as essential is not needed at all. In fact, it turns out there's better science with adult stem cells, better than the fetal tissue, the fetal cells, the embryonic stem cells, not just from the ethical standpoint, but from practical standpoints. The fetal tissue, fetal cells, embryonic stem cells are actually difficult to work with. They tend not to grow a nice way that you can monitor them and use them to form different types of reparative cells and tissues, whereas the adult stem cells are more manageable. They're mature in the sense that they have 
passed through that unmanageable stage until now they still can be grown in the laboratory and in the clinic, but they're more focused in terms of applications, especially to patients. And that's sometimes even patients still in the womb. They're already starting to see the application of adult stem cell therapies for babies still in the womb, including for some genetic conditions. So there's a bright future there because of the science as well as the ethics. But there is a caution. The never-ending push for new kinds of research is now moving into even more problematic areas. As Dr. Prentice explains, sometimes the pursuit of scientific discovery moves faster than the ethical considerations of what it means for humanity. The other aspect coming down the line is not destroying life, but manufacturing life. There are all sorts of strange terms that start to come up with embryoids and ectogenesis, meaning growing, developing human being, but in an artificial type womb. There are already experiments underway to do that. There used to be a provision that most scientists agreed to that they would not experiment on developing human beings past 14 days post-fertilization. Recently, the recommendations from a frankly self-appointed group of scientists who are trying to regulate this came out. And they said, "Eh, grow them as long as you want, as long as you can justify it scientifically. So there was a scientist in Israel who had shown he could grow mouse embryos in these little artificial bottles halfway through gestation for a mouse. And his immediate thing was, I want to do this with humans. It just keeps coming, and it's an area that we can't ignore because we talk about the millions of lives lost to abortion, not just in the U.S., but around the world. But we stand to see just as many or more human lives manufactured and destroyed in these types of scientific research. So we're trying to look ahead and sound some warning calls so people can understand some of this stranger research that's coming, but it definitely may have an impact on the future of humanity. Fortunately, an increasing number of scientists are starting to see the ethical dilemma with this kind of research. It's interesting that there are a few folks in the human rights area who are starting to speak up more and more especially in certain areas of these emerging challenges. For example, gene editing and genetic engineering. The older term used to be designer babies, but the idea that you're going to genetically determine the future of this child from the beginning at the point of conception. And it's been heartening, actually, to see a number of folks that you wouldn't have expected to, to speak out against this type of engineering humanity. A lot of it because it doesn't just affect that individual. When you do these genetic changes so early, these are what are termed heritable genetic changes. In other words, you can pass those on to future generations. And as sharp as scientists are, there's a great deal of hubris there that they don't even understand what it is they might be fiddling with and changing. One perfect example, the first two gene-edited babies were born just a few years ago in China. 
He originally set out to try and prevent these little girls from ever having to worry about an HIV infection. So he did this genetic engineering on them as very young embryos, then gestated and birthed these babies. And it turned out that only one of the two did he actually accomplish the desired genetic change. And then as people looked further, they found that, well, she might be resistant to the HIV virus, but she's more susceptible to things like West Nile virus, influenza. You probably changed her cognition and you may have shortened her life. So there's a lot of, I want to be the first to do this and show that I can do it, but a great lack of understanding of that life, that little girl's rights, and how this might affect future generations of human beings. While we are thankful that there are physicians and scientists involved in life-saving research who also understand the ethics of protecting life, there are other areas in medicine where political agendas have superseded sound medical knowledge. One of the most glaring examples of this is chemical or medication abortion. As medical professionals who care deeply for our patients, we are very concerned about the lack of transparency regarding the so-called abortion pill and its risks, especially after the 2021 decision from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to no longer require women seeking a chemical abortion to be examined in person before taking the medications. In a post-Roe world, they're talking about the majority of abortions would be chemical abortions. The idea supposedly being, hey, I don't even have to see the doctor. I can just accomplish this in the privacy of my own home. And that totally ignores the evidence we already have of not just increased complications with chemical abortion versus surgical abortion, but the significant health risks to women. We're seeing that trajectory already so that there's been, over the last few years, over 40% increase in the numbers of chemical abortions over surgical abortions. But the scariest part that a number of the Charlotte Lozier scholars have found is that there's an over 500% increase in the number of emergency room visits for these women. This idea of, oh, you do this in the privacy of your home, and you eliminate any contact with the physician, significantly increases the risk to the health and the life of the mother. When I'm on emergency room call, one of the true GYN emergencies is miscarriage. That's Dr. Kathy Altman, an OBGYN physician who used to perform abortions and then changed her mind after she had her own child. As she said in our first episode, just because a pregnancy was unwanted was no longer enough justification for her to kill the baby. I can remember ordering dinner, seeing the waiter coming, and all of a sudden my beeper going off and being called to the emergency room stat because there was a woman there that they had in mass trousers, which are trousers that they pump up to try to keep someone's blood pressure up when they're hemorrhaging to death. And there was this woman in the ER hemorrhaging from a miscarriage, and miscarriages were never fun. You could control the bleeding once you were able to do a DNC normally, but they were scary while they were ongoing. So the idea that we were going to be creating these miscarriages was really frightening to me. 
I think the fears that are being raised with Roe possibly being overturned and states banning abortions, that this is going to push people into back alley abortions again. I think that's kind of moot because we're really creating all of these back alley abortions by giving people these drugs without having adequate medical supervision. And I think that we're going to see a lot more complications than we have thus far because of this. The history of chemical abortion or medication abortion, it is a regimen using two different medications, one called mifepristone and one called misoprostol. Mifepristone was developed by a French pharmaceutical company in the late 1980s. It's a company called Roussel Euclef, which is a current French pharmaceutical company. Incidentally, that's where the RU in RU486 came from. If you recall, when medication abortion first became a thing, it was just called RU486. Dr. Brent Bowles is an APLOG member who was in private practice as chemical abortion was first being used. Mifeprex is the trade name for mifepristone, the first of two medications taken during a chemical abortion. This medication blocks the action of progesterone, a key hormone in early pregnancy, by binding to progesterone receptors in the pregnant woman's body. The FDA, under pressure from the Clinton administration in the late 1990s, fast-tracked the approval of Mifeprex for use in abortion in the United States. Prior to that, the FDA required that when a medication submitted an application for approval, that there be randomized controlled studies on efficacy and safety and the Food and Drug Administration chose to forego that requirement for the approval of Mifeprex. So it was approved late in the year 2000. Mifeprex is given to women seeking a medication abortion because it blocks the action of progesterone, essentially starving the pregnancy, which close to 90% of the time that will kill the pregnancy, but it doesn't always cause the pregnancy tissue to pass. So a second medication called misoprostol is given to essentially induce first trimester labor. And the woman will bleed and cramp and hurt like she would in labor and then pass the pregnancy at home. And that's how medication abortion works. When the FDA chose to ram through the approval of Mifeprex, it did not even rely on randomized controlled trials, the gold standard for determining the efficacy and safety of a new drug. Instead, it short-circuited safety mechanisms that should be in place for the health and welfare of women. Almost immediately after it was approved, APLOG physicians got involved in calling for more protections for women and looking into what the real risks were. APLOG CEO Dr. Donna Harrison explains more. It's a very powerful drug. It blocks progesterone receptors all over your body, in your brain, in your breast, in your ovary, in your immune system. So there have been animal studies with this drug that have shown that if you take rats and you give them mifeprex and then you give them an infection like by poking their bowel or something, the rats that don't have the mifeprex, 30% will die. One out of three will die. The rats that do have mifeprex, 100% will die because it suppresses the immune system. So you've got an immune suppressant, a powerful immune suppressant. Nobody's studying what happens with that with women. 
And I'm raising the issue because it affects progesterone receptors all over the body. The most important ones, the ones we think about, are in the reproductive system. But there's also progesterone receptors in your breast. Who knows the effect on breast cancer? Progesterone receptors in your brain. Who knows the effect on depression? So we're dealing with a very powerful anti-hormone-like drug. We don't know what the effects are because no one's looking, because nobody wants to know. So A-plug doctors have taken the lead in researching the real effects of medication abortion. For example, we've had APLOG doctors who have looked at the adverse event reports that have been submitted from the time of its release until 2019, publishing everything that the FDA released and finding that incredibly important things like most of the complications from a Mifeprex abortion are not taken care of by the abortionist. They're dumped on the emergency room. And finding that women who take both drugs, the mifeprex and the mesoprostol, the two drugs, hemorrhage at a higher rate than those who take the first drug alone. Why is that important? Because the abortion industry says that, oh, progesterone reversal is dangerous because it's women who take just the first drug, hemorrhage. Well, it turns out if you take both drugs, you hemorrhage at a higher rate than if you take the one drug. And if you take progesterone, you hardly hemorrhage at all. Dr. Chris Cerucci, she's one of our board members, just recently published an article which looked at the adverse events that were published in the medical literature by Planned Parenthood and compared that with the adverse events that are on the FDA website and compared that with the adverse events that FDA released to APLOG doctors who were investigating it. And she found that the FDA website has less than half of the adverse events that Planned Parenthood said they reported to the FDA. Recently, I published a peer-reviewed article also with Dr. Altman and Dr. Harrison, and that was an interesting start to that. I was reviewing some papers, reading the literature. There's an article by Cleland that was published in 2013, and I was studying that article by Cleland. I I think it's important to know the research. And Cleland's article looked at all the medication abortions performed by Planned Parenthood in 2009-2010, and they reported on eight specific adverse events. And they concluded that the adverse event rate was low. Now, of course, they only reported on specific eight adverse events. They only reported on what they knew about. They didn't report their loss to follow-up. But it was a study with over 200,000 abortions, so there's some strength to that data. But I knew we had reviewed these adverse events, and when I looked at what they were reporting, I realized this is not adding up. The adverse events they had were not consistent with what I knew. And in fact, Cleland's paper took their data from the reports they sent to the FDA, and I found inconsistencies there. The 2013 study led by Dr. Cleland that Dr. Cerucci reviewed was published in the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. It's a study that is often referenced by abortion advocates to argue that chemical abortions are safe. However, a closer review of their data showed not only that chemical abortions are not as safe as they claim, but also that many of the complications appear to have never been reported. Dr. Kathy Altman explains more about the two papers published by the APLOG team and how important they are to understand the misrepresentation that chemical abortions are safe. The first paper, we just took all of the adverse event reports which are reports that are generated anytime someone reports a complication on the particular drug. So because the FDA 
felt that mifepristone was dangerous, it could only be prescribed under certain circumstances called REMS, the restrictions imposed by the FDA. And one of the requirements was that all adverse events such as hospitalizations, transfusions, deaths, and anything of any major significance had to be reported. So under the REMS, the provider had to report any serious complications to the manufacturer who then had to report that to the FDA. So we, through the Freedom of Information Act, obtained all of these adverse event reports and we went through them and there were a lot of people doing this. I think there must have been about 30 people who took a certain number of them and went through and tried to code them as to how serious the events were, what the events were. We had a whole series of criteria, which we then tabulated and came up with numbers of deaths, numbers of hemorrhage, serious hemorrhage, transfusions. We looked at where the procedure was done, whether it was done in the clinic, done in an emergency room at the hospital, if the patient had to have any other surgeries, and a a variety of information like that, and we just tabulated it all. Now, we couldn't come up with a percentage because we didn't have a denominator, but we did get a good idea of what the complications were, how serious they were, and how women tended to be treated. And we didn't put this in the paper, but we were all struck with the way the patients were sort of shuffled off. There were some clinics that seemed to bring the patients back and they would kind of take care of the complication there especially if it just meant doing an aspiration. But very often they were sent to the emergency room. And then oftentimes the emergency room poo-pooed it and sent them out. And unless several of these women had just insisted on being seen and being treated, they probably would have died. Some of them, when they finally were treated, their hemoglobin was four, which is really, really low, close to death. What's interesting, though, and we found this in the second paper, was that Planned Parenthood reported a certain number of complications. And in some of those cases, even though Planned Parenthood, I think, only did about 36% of the abortions, what they were reporting was significantly higher than what the FDA had in their database. So was it that the manufacturer did not report all the cases that Planned Parenthood reported to them? Or did the FDA not count all of the ones that were reported to them? Because they were only 36% of all the medication abortions. What happened to the rest of them? They must have had a similar number of complications. What happened to all those complications? That was really striking. The way the reporting happens is the abortion provider reports an adverse event to Danko, who was the manufacturer, who reports to the FDA, who then puts it on their FDA adverse event reporting system dashboard. In 2009, 2010, that paper said Planned Parenthood had 1,530 patients with adverse events. Yet in the FDA adverse event database, there were only 664. So those events are not showing up in the database. And then when we requested them for the earlier paper I did with Dr. Altman and others, we only got 330 of those. So the FDA is saying, oh, this is safe. We're not getting adverse event reports. But even the adverse events that 
Cleland and Planned Parenthood are saying they reported aren't showing up in the database. So it just shows you that this database has a lot of discrepancies. And that doesn't even account for all those adverse events that Planned Parenthood isn't aware of. 2016 and after, there is no requirement to report any adverse event except death. But this was back before that. So where did the link break down? The paper by Cleland says they reported it to Danko. Did they not report it? Did Danko not report it to the FDA? Did the FDA not put it on their website? Certainly, I have no way of knowing that. So it was a significant finding. If you look at the international studies, they really show a different picture because they have a health service registry. They have a better way of tracking. One study based in a Scandinavian country by Ninamaki showed 20% of women undergoing medication abortion hemorrhaged a much higher rate of complications than from surgical abortion. We already know in the study, Dr. Altman and some of us did, we found in that study that less than 40% of the DNCs required after medication abortion were performed by the abortion provider. That's not good medicine. As a physician, if I have a complication, if I have something that needs to be done, I take care of my patient. You follow your patient through. So that indicates to me that if these patients are getting their follow-up care in the ER rather than the abortion provider, of course, there's way more complications than what we know about. It's not good care for women. With the complete disregard for continuity of care for women seeking chemical abortions and the lack of reporting of the true complication rates, we here at APLOG feel an urgency to make sure women and their doctors have the true picture of what's at stake. This part of our mission will continue whether or not abortion is legal in all 50 states. A lot of doctors have never heard this information about not just the increase in numbers of chemical abortion, but the significant increase in complications and in ER visits. They really need to pay attention to this because they're going to be dealing with the outcomes of this increase of chemical abortion. Women that may come to them at their clinic or more likely to the emergency room and they have to be able to know accurately what's happened to this woman so they know how to plan their treatment and healing. It's interesting that in terms of recording data, taking records, following health patterns, and so on, it's really only in the area of abortion that these things are ignored. If you look at FDA requirements that the only outcomes, adverse events that need to be reported are deaths, I'm sorry, there are hundreds or thousands of women who are affected adversely. Maybe they don't finally die. They're dragged back by some courageous ER physicians and, and OB-GYNs who are working with them. But this needs to be added to the list of things that objectively we consider in terms of a woman's health. And ideology needs to go out the window. The real focus needs to be on the woman's health. So what you're going to see from the abortion industry is that you're going to see more women who are hurt by these abortion pills. And then the abortion industry who has pushed and marketed these pills as safe will turn around and say, see, when you make abortion illegal, women die. But they're the ones who are pushing the pills that make the women die. So getting around that and getting information out to women about what these abortion pills do what they really do and what the women's risks really are is going to be critically important in that post-Roe world.
Dr. Donna Harrison has devoted her career to caring for women and their children. Because she has been a leader in exposing the truth of chemical abortions, it's appropriate that she have the last word on this episode of the Post Row Review. In the next episode, we will talk about how we're reaching a new generation of medical students and residents. The Post Row Review is a production of APLOG, the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. I'm Dr. Christina Francis. For more information, please visit aplog.org. That's A-A-P-L-O-G dot org.